This is Business Dad. On this episode, Alexis Ohanian chats with Nicholas Thompson, editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine. Nicholas describes how he feels about screen time for his sons and the adventures of his own bedtime story creation, Eggplant Parmesan. Previously, Nicholas was the editor of NewYorker.com. He's also the author of the acclaimed book about the history of the Cold War. He's released three albums of acoustic guitar music as well. Nicholas lives with his wife and three sons who are 11, 9, and 5. Business Dad is brought to you by Initialized. Initialized invests in early-stage technology companies and helps founders avoid the thousands of landmines that can cause failure. Visit Initialize.com to find out more. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for attending. Um, Thank you all for coming. This is a very special night. We're doing, uh, well, as you can all tell, we're doing a, a recording of an episode of Business Dad. This is a podcast that is not out yet, so you're basically participating in the future. So keep it keep it tight, keep it close uh, to the chest. We're gonna we're launch a, a ton of episodes before the end of the year. I'm excited to do this in front of a live audience because uh, we've never done that before. And so if there are things you find really funny, please laugh extra hard. If you find things that you want to cheer about, feel free to cheer about. Um, but I'm, I'm very fortunate because we were able to use this space early, um, thanks to the Adams team. Um, thank you, Akash Sidra, and everyone else here. This is an early admission to what will be a month-long pop-up uh, that focuses on all things uh, around design, specifically their footwear, but just broadly an appreciation for the creators, for the builders, for the designers. And so it seemed like a good place uh, to interview Nick Thompson, who's the editor-in-chief of a little magazine called Wired. Uh, kind of a big deal. If if uh, if you all are like me, you grew up reading this thing, and I have to say personally, uh, there's been an amazing renaissance since Nick took over, and I've enjoyed reading it. I feel like it's just it, it has gone back to the roots that all of us just first fell in love with when we got excited by technology through this magazine. Um, some of us were just like dorks in the suburbs of Maryland who had no idea what Silicon Valley was like, had no idea what technology was like, and this was a gateway in. Um, so thank you, Nick. Um, please. Thank you. Nick Thompson. <laughs> and, and, and what's especially cool about this is I want to spend the next 30 minutes not talking about any of your accolades in your career, though that would be fun. We might touch on them. I want to talk about your life as a, a business dad. Great. Uh, you're, you're a father of three. Yep. You got three boys. Yep. And you're obviously very career driven, mm-hmm. uh, had a lot of success. And we've crossed paths over the years. You're like basically running things on the download, The New Yorker, um, with, with a savviness um, for what was to come. That, that it did not surprise me one bit when you were announced as editor in chief of Wired. You know, I think the question on everyone's mind is how do you have it all? How do you balance between a career that you care so much about and a family? Uh, that is just as, if not more important? That's a key question. I'm glad we're, we're, I'm glad we're talking about this because yeah. the premise of the podcast, dads don't get to talk about this too much. I actually think that having children, my sons are 11, 9, and 5, has made me better at my career in part because it makes you so aware of whether you're adding value to the world and whether you're doing a good job at it because you know your children will be watching you one day and you know that your children will be evaluating you. And I feel like in some ways I'm trying to, I'm trying to do a good job because I want them to think I did a good job, right? And so there's something, something about the having children has focused the mind mm-hmm. and it makes you pay a little more attention to what's important in your job and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. 
the question of how to balance life and work is incredibly hard. And it's certainly easier, um, easier and different for men than it is for women. But for me, you know, I try to keep a very structured schedule where I take them to school, I go to work, and I leave work you know, almost every day at six <laughs> to go home and put them to bed and tell them stories and play with them and work with them on their things. And then they go to sleep and I go back to work, right? And I you know, go back to my computer. And so that's a good way to put in enough hours that you need to put in as editor of Wired and a good way to spend time with your children. And what you lose is all the other things you would do between nine and midnight, right? You lose a lot of social engagements. You lose- Video games, in my case. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of trade-offs you make, right? There's only a certain amount of time. And um, you know, I try to spend all the time with my kids. I try to spend you know, all, every minute of the weekends with them. And, and I try to spend like real time, like try to figure out what they're most interested in, try to do it with them and try to engage with them on, on their level. Um, you know, and then you arrange your travel. I don't know, like, so on Friday, I have to be in San Francisco for an event, and on Monday, I have to be in Los Angeles for an event, and mm-hmm. coming back Friday night, leaving Monday morning, you know, so I get to have the weekend playing soccer and tennis with the boys. Is that a weird thing for you to be out the door to see your kids? Does your team know that? Do they recognize that? Is yeah. that, uh, how, how normal has that been in your career? You know, and I started at The New Yorker, where I, as you, as you said, I, work, I ran the website, um, I think for them it was a little bit weird at the beginning, but I'm like, mm. I'm out, you know, and it's very clear, and partly I'm managing a lot of people in San Francisco, so the time shifting works, works all right, because by the time I come back online at nine o'clock, it's six o'clock, so I can deal with the problems that have come up during the time where I've been off with my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit weird. I think people are probably used to the editor-in-chief, you know, coming in at six in the morning, leaving at 10 o'clock, being there at the desk all the time, but mm-hmm. I don't know, that's the only way I'm gonna do it, so. There I am. We talked about this a little bit before we got started. There are so many trends now about how work has evolved thanks to technology. A lot of the stuff that you all talk about, right? We we take it as a given now that the future of work is in some way remote, but absolutely flexible um, because we have tools that allow us to be at work when we need to versus not. Um, And you've watched that transition happen. Um, and you know, a place like the New Yorker, which is probably not the most tech-forward media property, um, to a place like Wired, which wants to be on the cutting edge of that, are there things that you've been able to learn that have helped you better deal with that? Because it's a it's a gift and a curse. Right. The, the same technology that lets us do the work flexibly also lets us be chained to it when we know our toddler wants our attention. Yeah, um, I mean, it is obviously extremely helpful to be able to go on Zoom, right, at 10 o'clock and talk to somebody at 7 o'clock in the West Coast and to be able to communicate with them in a way that is fairly seamless and terrific. It's, you know, very convenient to have Slack chats, right? It's just yeah. an efficient way of sending messages. And then how do you, right, how do you not stare at it all the time? I, I can just put the phone in the kitchen when it's time to play with them. Oh, you're old you school. Go. It is gone. It is out of mind. I it's out to, of sight. I try to keep it out of mind, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I mean, you, you work at Wired, you... You recognize like the wonders of this stuff and also the detriments. Yeah. Do you, we've had founders, uh, Mathilde of Front, um, the CEO there, very sort of publicly challenged a lot of us, myself included, to turn off notifications on our phone. Do you have any hacks around this or, I mean, she, I swear to God, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, well, no, I'm not looking at you crazy. It's like, of course you should turn off notifications. Really? Like, I have no notifications on my phone. Are you nuts? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Turn off all your notifications. You should probably delete Twitter from your phone, right? Okay. Susan on Jack's desktop. not going to be happy about that. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I, I keep Twitter on the last screen, so it's at least it's a hassle to get to because it's such a distraction device. Oh, wow. I've turned off all notifications. I have, um, 
you know, I used to have a, I used the Freedom app, right, which turns off the internet when you need to focus and write. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a countdown timer that can, you know, you can set it for particular sites you don't want it to use, and it will make it inex- make those sites inaccessible after five minutes if you want to limit yourself. So mm-hmm. I use lots of things to try to make sure I stay on task. You've got uh, three kids. Your oldest is eleven. Yeah. So, so I, I, mean, I got a two-year-old, so I do not know how any of this stuff works after two. But at eleven, I assume devices are playing a much bigger role and technology plays a much bigger role in their lives. How, how are you thinking, how have you navigated that balance? Yeah, so the way I think about technology and kids is that there's a food pyramid of, of stuff, right? And yeah. so there's stuff at the top that is just awful, right? You should never let them use a device right before bed. You should never have them looking at a screen during dinner time or during family time. There's stuff kind of one level down where it's probably mostly bad, mm-hmm. but okay if supervised, like watching YouTube, right? You really don't want them like watching YouTube unsupervised because you're going to end down, you know. You go to this rabbit hole, all of a sudden they're learning Russian from some creepy bear that all of a sudden descends into some weird, right? right, And then it's thrown in a washing machine with an axe, right? Yeah, no, we've seen, this has been well reported on. Yeah. Yeah. So stuff like that, violent video games, I would put in that same category where there's a certain amount where if they have to do it with their friends at a birthday party, that's okay. And then there's lower tiers, right? So I love it if my 11-year-old emails his grandma. I think that's amazing, right? We, we do Spanish learning apps together. We use typing agents together. I'm totally fine if my nine-year-old looks up the Barcelona scores and like studies the La Liga tables, um, learning how to use Google. So there, I think there's a pyramid of stuff that we allow and stuff we don't allow. We actually just yesterday um, gave our 11-year-old a flip phone. So we have a deal with his friends to not get them smartphones, to keep them off of social media until they're 13. Okay. And we figure if all the parents agree, right? It's called wait till eight. If all the parents agree, then there won't be the social pressure to be on Instagram and to be on stuff they're not quite ready for. But a flip phone is useful because if he walks to school by himself or walks home from school by himself, it's nice to get the text message, I'm home. For sure. And it teaches them to appreciate this this very hipster, antiquated technology. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, supporting the flip phone business. Uh, Yeah. Well, isn't isn't this having a renaissance? Didn't someone just announce a a feature phone? Was it Motorola, one of them? People are not. This was like a thing. Is, Is this a part of a bigger trend? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think this is the reaction to the obsession with tech that we all started to notice about two years ago that it had become unhealthy. But we need this. We, we need, need it. We need, we need tech obsession. done right. Yeah. Right? We need yeah. tech done right, but like losing yourself in a three-hour YouTube rabbit hole, which every single person in this room has done, Guilty. is yeah. not good for anybody. YouTube is great. Like There's amazing stuff on YouTube. We should all use YouTube. I'm so glad it exists. Mm-hmm. YouTube rabbit hole, not great. So the job with this magazine and the job I have with my children is helping to explain how to use it appropriately. I, I'm very keen on just learning sort of hacks and tricks and tips and sort of rituals or routines. You you were telling me a little bit about an ongoing story. It almost <laughs> it doesn't feel right to call it a story. It feels yeah. like an, an epic tale. How, how does this all work? Yeah, so I, I was saying that I have to, we have to wrap this at seven because I gotta go home because I have a deal to tell chapter 14 of this story. So I have um, a world I've created with my 11-year-old and my 9-year-old, and I've told it to him about the same ages, but it involves the story of a little boy whose name, for whatever reason, and who knows why, is named Eggplant Parmesan and is born in an egg in a bog in the Catskills. And there's a whole series of adventures that he has escaping from a series of bad characters. There's Sammy the Skunk. There's a Black Hawk who will later be revealed as a very dark role in the boy's past. But yesterday, the story involved having to escape, um, having to escape from Sammy the Skunk um, Eggplant Parmesan and his friend Larry the Bear had to escape in a car made entirely out of mushrooms down Mount Trumper. And there was a boulder covered in moss rolling after them that somehow could sense the car. And so it was the mushroom car trying to escape from the boulder. And so, yeah, of course. Um, And so we have this elaborate world that I created and create every night with them. And so that's that's part of the routine of putting 
of putting the children to sleep, just telling them a new chapter every night. And look, I think of all the reasons to need to end on time for a podcast, especially <laughs> business dad, that is the perfect one. I got to go tell chapter 14. Uh, yeah, like, so I got to think of it on the way home and then... Uh, aside from being able to flex your own creative muscles, which is fulfilling and interesting for any creative person, what role do you think that plays for your kids? Uh, because they've been all three of them have heard the story, and I assume like there's some common threads, but has this story evolved? Like, are they fact checking one another? No, with the story, what is to come? The story completely changes. I mean, and it has oh. some of the same characters, but I can't remember it. Well, so why is it important to be doing this instead of just reading? I mean, it's already awesome just to read kids a story, right? There's yeah. enough studies to show that reading to children is valuable, important, blah blah blah. Why why not just you know phone it in like the rest of us and read a damn book? Why do you have to invent it? It's fun for, it's, I guess, right. So one of the interesting challenges of parenting, this gets to a bigger issue, is that the best moments are where you're engaging with them in a way that they love and you're learning yourself. Right? And I noticed this last night with my wife. So my nine-year-old is really into soccer. And my wife is a modern dancer. And they found this thing where there's kind of a move that he's learning through his soccer academy that's kind of like a dance move. And they compete against each other. And it's fun for her because it's a little bit like dancing. It's like how many steps you can do with a sort of a back kick. And it's really fun for him and helps him improve at soccer. And it's fun for her. And then last night I was doing it, you know, with the five-year-old who's trying to learn from the nine-year-old. And we were all doing it in the hallway. The person who doesn't like this is a downstairs neighbor. Um, <laughs> but the, the best things are where you're learning something and you're really getting great pleasure out of it, as are they. And I think they get more pleasure out of it if you are. So I love telling these stories. I've gotten so much better at soccer just through playing in the hallways with the five-year-old and the nine-year-old. I try to get them involved in my job to the extent I can, right? If there's something interesting in my job where they will have thoughts or I will, I'll talk to them, like, what kind of phone would you want to invent? And they have all these great, like, they, phones should have legs so that when you lose it, it can crawl to you, right? They have, like, their imagine, <laughs> which, of course, a phone should have legs, right? It should, it should. I mean, I, I, I'm really starting <laughs> to see some flaws here. I mean, I, like, how would these legs actually work? But, but I guess this is but the I mean, line of It's so much fun to talk about this stuff with your children. Or so I, a very good example, a specific example, which might sound a, a little gratuitous, but I'll tell you. So this morning I did an event um, down at Penn with um, Secretary of State Kerry. And the question was, ask Kerry about technology and foreign policy, right? And so that was my assignment is to interview about him about that um, down, at, down at Penn. And so I wanted to engage my children in this. Um, and so I asked them, I said, okay, fine. You guys get to come up with the first question. And so we talked last night about what the first question for Kerry was. And so the process of that means I have to explain who John Kerry is and why he matters and what the Secretary of State is and why he lost the election and and so then they decided. Wow, wow! This was not. This is like a. This is not a one-minute conversation. You really sat him down and. Yeah, yeah. it was funny. Then. <laughs> so, what, what question should you ask? And the nine-year-old, of course, wants to troll him. Like, did you get there into a car? Right? Like, did you burn any fossil fuels? Um, but the eleven-year-old uh, wanted to ask sort of bigger structural questions about climate change because they've just mm-hmm. had the climate march. And did they participate? I did not let them because. 11 is a little early to go into Manhattan without Oh, you had to come in? Oh, yeah. All right, yeah, just, let me it, There was like one kid in my... But this is a thing. My two-year-old had nothing to say about the climate march. Right. And I was like, well, clearly you don't care. Uh, but there is, <laughs> there is this, uh, there's this amazing thing happening, and we're watching it on, in our social media feeds. Yeah. And so it's hitting them even if they're too young to participate. They're still it's, talking it's about it. They're, they're thinking they're about it. Really interested in it. Yeah, so the question they wanted to ask Carrie was a great question, which is kids have been protesting for a long time. It hasn't worked. Will it work this time? And what should we do differently? Which is a great question. It was a great way to sort of, in a friendly, fun way, get Secretary of State Kerry 
to talk about a topic where he's very comfortable, has 35 years of experience, and then to go into other questions about, I don't know, technology and authoritarian governments in which my children have fewer <laughs> theories. <laughs> and, and so you're going to bring this question home to them, or at least the, yeah. his answer. Tonight I'm going to talk to them about, about his answer. And close the loop. Uh, how much does it matter to you, or why does it matter to you that they feel like they have uh, involvement in dad's work? Because right, historically, yeah. I visited my dad's work once. I visited my right. mom's work once. And, and it was a thing that was just, like you came home from it, and you tried to leave it all behind. Right. And occasionally it would spill out at the dinner table, but it was very church and state. Yeah, that's interesting, right? So, okay, so the easy answer would be, my work is interesting for children, right? I run Wired Magazine as a technology magazine. Like, getting to learn about climate change is interesting. So, in part, it's because of what I do. But I also think it's important for the father-child relationship to yeah. understand the other parts. Like, I disappear for eight, nine hours a day. Like, what am I doing? I want them to have some sense that I'm not just gone. I'm doing this thing that they have some connection to. Mm-hmm. I think it helps deepen the bond between us. Mm-hmm. Do you want them to pursue a career in media? In media? Yeah. God, no. No, that's too <laughs> flippant answer. I think, I think that being, I think being a journalist is a great profession. It's a noble profession. There's real civic value. It's a challenged profession economically, so that's, the, that's that. I, I don't have strong views on what they, should, what they should do. I think they should follow their passions. We definitely try to encourage them to follow their passions, and they're very different passion. So you talked about how much having a child has given you superpowers in terms of like time management, being able to sort of cut out the bullshit and know what matters. Superpowers, but the time lost, if you lose eight hours a day, you get some of it back Mm. is what I mean. So it's not quite superpowers. It's limited the losses. All right. And then, you know, I, I, short of inspiring everyone to go have kids, um, are there ways for them to appreciate some of this value or extract some of this value, uh, themselves and how, how would you recommend someone who doesn't have children try to, to sort of learn from as much of this as possible without having that, like, you know, like deep emotional bond and, you know, screaming child in their lives? I think having two children is easier than having one, and having three is easier than two. Oh. They play with each other. I actually oh. think that one of the, one of the right. things that has been most surprising to me... All right. I'm going to quote you when I go home to my wife and say, look, it's actually easier. Nick told me it's easier. <laughs> I mean, so, and, you know, it's, they're obviously complicated trade-offs, you know, yeah. based on particularly with a woman who carries the child for nine yes. months. And yeah, it's t- so way more responsibility. Family. Way more responsibility yeah. and physical change, particularly, yes. you know, for my wife, a dancer, for your wife and her career, right? There's a real... There are real... They're far deeper trade-offs with the question of parenthood. But that is one of the miraculous things is that mm. I remember having one and thinking, oh, my God, like it's, you know, there's no time for anything. Mm. And it feels like things kind of opened up with two and three because they do spend so much time. And you also get better at it. Mm. You know, you know how to change a diaper, mm-hmm. right, which you didn't, I didn't when the first one came around. Yeah. And, and then for the folks who are, are or maybe who are parents, and who feel like, hey, I've been exercising these muscles. I feel like I'm doing a not terrible job. We all struggle. We all feel like we're not doing well enough, right? Of course. And that's guaranteed, right? We never feel like we're doing enough. Um, but are there lessons that you've found that you've been able to bring to employees or teams, whether it's mentoring or just approaches you take with management now, that you feel like you've learned directly because you've had to deal with you know, raising children? Oh, I definitely think that having children has made me extremely sympathetic to mm. You know, children who come in, you know, close the door. Well, just so you know, I'm either my wife is having a kid in X amount of time or I'm having a kid in X amount of time. And I'm always like, great, because I'm so excited by it, which I think is probably a 
probably a good response. Very good response. Um, I, yeah. I think it's wonderful. I think it's a huge emotional benefit to have children. I think, I, I think it just makes, it, it can really enrich your, enrich your life um, if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where you can have, have children financially and um, emotionally. Um, so I think that has been different. I think they probably see from example, right? The editor's leaving at six to go take care of his kids. Mm-hmm. It's fine if I go leave at six to go take care of my kids. So I think they see that as an example. Are there lessons, you know, you talked about how sort of selfishly you get to do things with your kids that you enjoy doing and yeah. then kind of see it through their eyes in this virtuous cycle. Um, are there things that you've been able to take back um, and I, I have no idea what it takes to be an editor-in-chief, but do you find yourself in situations with other members of your team where you are going to, I don't know, maybe even just see the role of mentorship and leadership differently now? Mm-hmm. Because obviously these are not your kids, but right. these are people who are coming up in their careers, they are developing, and, and ideally you're helping them get there, you're helping them level up. Yeah, that's a good question, right? I wonder whether there are... You do think so much about modeling your behavior so that you're kids see you behave well like it's very important to not you know to know, you know that if you if they ever see you lose their your temper about anything they're more likely to lose their temper right so you're very well if it's a football match and it's really important you know, there are times <laughs> it's fine <laughs> for when you have to rage at a television screen yeah. <laughs> i'm speaking for myself now uh, that's that that's a totally reasonable but, for, but they, are, they are paying attention they're paying, they're, what, one of the things that is amazing about parenthood is the things that they remember, where you're like, you know, I dropped that, but they didn't notice, right? And then like three months later, they're like, remember when you dropped that? And you're like, how did you, how did you notice that? And they, and they see everything they do, and they observe you very closely. So you do try to balance yourself and show them, show them that you're reading. And that's one of the things about being on a device all the time, right? Like another thing that prevents me from looking at my device, it's not like I never look at my device, I'm no angel or saint here, but knowing that if I'm sitting there looking at my phone, you know, they're going to be sucked into screens in a way that I don't like. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm absolutely with my children trying to model my behavior. Then the sort of the deeper part of your question is, does that affect the way I model my behavior for my employees? Mm-hmm. I don't think consciously, but I'm sure that unconsciously it has some mm-hmm. effect on trying to set an example to the extent I can. This is, and, and this is the thing that I, I've, I've, sort of pried at in a lot of these interviews where it, it, I think regardless of the industry, the, the top practitioners all have a way of thinking that has been informed by their family life because, yeah, I mean, yes, our work lives often take up as much or more time than we spend with our families, yeah. um, but the two are not separate. They bleed into each other all the time. And the idea, I think the idea of it being a separate thing, like, oh, you come home from work and you're back home versus you're at the office now and, and home life is separate, it always was an illusion that previous generations kind of sort of papered around. Uh, but it's falling apart now. Here's, here's, a, here's a story I think that I think gets at this point. So when I, um, I was at the New Yorker, I love the New Yorker, I adore the New Yorker, I adore David Remnick. And there was a moment where, it was 2016, where simultaneously I was offered a crazy job at a big tech company and I was offered the editor-in-chief of Wired, like literally on the same day, unbeknownst to the two sides. Wow. And I had to make a decision over the weekend. Um, and I remember making up all these, you know, so, okay, so what matters most? Like, where would be the most advanced for growth? What's the sort of geographically the easiest? What is the upside of this? What is the downside? You make all these charts. And, and then finally, I remember having a conversation with my wife where I said, okay, so let's try to do it this way. If you could come up with one question that should decide this, what would that question be? And the question we came up with was, which job will make you a better dad for your children? Right? Wow. 
And so then, okay, then even when you choose that as the deciding question, right, you're choosing path A or path B, then it's complicated because, well, you know, this, this one will, maybe it'll make you more money, which will be good for your children, or maybe this one will have more impact on the world. But ultimately, we decided that the wire job will make me a better dad because it'll introduce me to all this new technology that I'll be able to show them that will allow me to meet all these new people that will connect them to these different worlds, right? They think it's amazing that I'm talking to you because they have a Wheaties box with your wife on it this morning, right? Oh, like, that's good. I was hoping you were going to say because they were on Reddit and I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad they're not on Reddit. Well, that is the right reason. But it allows you, the, the wire, that was, I think. And thank you for buying that Wheaties box. Yeah. It's a great box. Well, like, they don't even Good like cover. Wheaties. They just yeah. like the box. Um, so, Marketing. <laughs> but I think that is, a, I think that was the right question to ask. And I think we made the, I'm, my wife and I together made the right decision on which job to take. I love that. Yeah. I, I could not think of a better thing to end on. And I also did promise you you'd get home in time for chapter 15? 14. 14. Yeah. No spoilers, okay, uh, <laughs> of this eggplant parmesan adventure. Um, I, I just want to thank you and on behalf of everyone here. Like, thank you so much, Nick. This was Thanks, awesome. Alexis. I hope you all enjoyed it. That was really fun. Uh, all right, thank you so much. Thank you. Remember, get a subscription. Business data is brought to you by Initialized. Initialized invests in early stage technology companies and helps founders avoid the thousands of landmines that can cause failure. Visit initialized.com to find out more.